Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Previously on The James Brown Mystery, Jackie Hollander takes the duffel bag from Candace Hearst's storage unit to a prosecutor in Georgia who agrees to look into the circumstances of the Godfather of Souls' death. If it was not a natural death, do you know what caused the death? I believe I do, sir. We learn that right before he died, James Brown wanted to move to New York City. But it seems at least one member of his inner circle didn't want him to leave. He said, I don't care what Mr. Brown wants to do. He's staying here. And we fly to California to talk with a woman who may know more about Brown's last moments alive. He wasn't feeling good. His chest started feeling like he was burning. And then he said, Mr. Bobbitt, Mr. Bobbitt, I can't breathe. It's burning. Mr. Bobbitt, I'm gone. They're, they got me. As I try to solve the mystery of James Brown's death, I keep running into walls. And I can't help thinking there are other people who might be able to get around those walls. Police detectives or prosecutors, for instance. They can do things I can't. They can put witnesses under oath, get search warrants for Brown's medical records and other evidence, demand to know where the body is, even have it exhumed for an autopsy. In 2020, it looks as if prosecutors in Atlanta are moving in that direction. The DA agrees to check out Jackie Hollander's claim that James Brown was murdered. And on a hot afternoon in July, Jackie calls me. She's just heard from Assistant DA Mike Sprinkle. Hey, Jackie. I'm trying to remain calm, okay? Mr. Sprinkle, he was on the phone almost four hours with me. And he gave me his cell phone number, and he said, you can call me anytime. I want you to start giving me every shred of evidence you can give me. Sprinkle is the one who took the potential evidence Jackie retrieved from Candace Hurst's storage unit, the green plastic bin that included the James Brown duffel bag with Candace's lingerie and her black stiletto shoe. When I talked to her, Candace denied all wrongdoing and said she had nothing to do with James Brown's death. She and her daughter said she was nowhere near Atlanta that night. Anyway, I have a video of Sprinkle, the prosecutor, going through the bin and placing the items into clear plastic evidence bags. And he goes, there's no doubt that something happened to James Brown. He goes, I've been waiting to have a grand jury hearing, but I can start serving search warrants. He said that there's no doubt that something happened to that room, that many people lied and covered it up. Does he now believe that James Brown, what? Was murdered, yes. He believes Brown was murdered? Yes. This is the biggest news 
I've heard in three I and a half Thomas. years, right? I, I know, Thomas. <laughs> I've been crying. And I cried on the phone with him. And he goes, none of us think you're crazy, Jackie. You've been through hell. They're going down, Thomas. Did a prosecutor really tell Jackie he thought James Brown was murdered? Here's what I've been able to confirm. Internal records from the DA's office show that Sprinkle did talk on the phone with Jackie that day. She says he got her permission to record the call. But when I requested the tape, the DA's office said they had no such recording. I asked for an interview with Sprinkle, but I got no response. And when I asked if Sprinkle really said he thought Brown was murdered, no one from the DA's office would answer that question. It's July 7th, 2020, when Jackie calls me to say the prosecutor told her he thinks Brown was murdered. As I take this all in, Jackie pauses to place her order. She's calling me from the McDonald's drive through line and getting her usual. Yes, beat me with three lemons and extra ice. Then Jackie tells me something else she says the prosecutor told her. He's convinced there are powerful people who do not want James Brown's death to be investigated, and they're going to do what they can to stand in his way. Even so, Jackie says this prosecutor is determined to find out who killed James Brown. He said, I'm not dropping it unless they clean me out of the office. From CNN, this is The James Brown Mystery. I'm your host, Thomas Lake. This is Episode 8. Tonight, I saw a falling star. Years ago, I had this routine. I'd spend a few weeks on a project, letting my notebooks and outlines and other documents spread out over my desk, and then I'd finish the story and clean up, throw away some stuff, put other stuff in filing cabinets or on shelves, wipe down my desk with a wet paper towel, and start over fresh. It felt good, healthy, normal. I haven't done that in a very long time. Since I met the circus singer five years ago, I've been wrestling with the same unfinished project. My office is a disaster. Dusty books everywhere. Jagged piles of paperwork. There are still so many questions, and all of them feel related. Questions about James Brown's death. About Adrian Brown's death. About how their lives were intertwined with Jackie Hollander's life and about the role of the CIA. Do you think the CIA was involved in this? Let's sign that form and let's find out. A few months after meeting Jackie, I try to persuade her to sign a permission form that would let me send a request to the CIA for any documents it might have on her. But Jackie is afraid to sign it. Why do I feel like I'm going to get killed doing this? Because you felt like you were going to get killed but I think this continuously is going to get killed. for the last 30 years, that's why. But I think this will get me killed. Finally, Jackie works up the nerve to file the request herself. She asks the CIA to send her copies of any documents it might have that relate to her. Every few weeks, she calls the CIA's Freedom of Information hotline to check on her request. She calls me to say one man just told her, we're processing your file. And one woman seems determined to help Jackie get what she wants. She told me that they had my files and that she hoped I would get them. And everyone I talked to would say to me, I hope you get your files. And I said, it's very important to me to see these documents. And she said, and we think you deserve to see them. 
For months, Jackie is on pins and needles, wondering when she'll hear back from the CIA. One day she calls me to say a man on the FOIA hotline just told her, our officers are in meetings over this, meaning her files. And he added, some of it can be cleared and some of it can't. Several months after sending in the request, Jackie gets a letter from the CIA. Okay, this is a long letter. After conducting a search reasonably calculated to uncover all relevant documents, we did not locate any responsive records that would reveal, now this is interesting, and public publicity acknowledged affiliation with the CIA. To the extent your request also seeks records that would reveal a classified association between the CIA and yourself, we can neither confirm nor deny having such records. It's a huge disappointment. The CIA is telling Jackie something she already knew, that it has no publicly acknowledged affiliation with her. But as for the bigger question, whether there are any documents at all, the mystery remains. The letter says that if the CIA does have records on Jackie, those records would be classified, basically kept secret for reasons of national security. For Jackie, and for me, this is infuriating. The answers are out there. We've gone through the proper channels to get them. And now the authorities are saying, we don't have to give you those answers. And it turns out they don't. This is not just defeat. It feels genuinely unfair. They're not saying they don't have anything. They said we can't confirm it or deny it. Your affiliation. Well, thank you. Meanwhile, I'm filing my own FOIA requests with the CIA, trying to get some clarity on what the CIA did or didn't do in James Brown's life. Brown thought the CIA started surveilling him in 1968, after he prevented the riot in Boston. From declassified documents I've read about Brown's extensive travels in Africa, we know the State Department was monitoring Brown in the 70s. Jackie came into Brown's life in the 80s when Brown frequently talked about CIA surveillance. She claims Brown could get top government officials on the phone, including then-Vice President George H.W. Bush, who'd previously directed the CIA. I've read copies from presidential archives of several friendly letters Brown and Bush sent back and forth, so they definitely knew each other. Jackie says Brown also told her he knew Manuel Noriega, the Panamanian dictator who was later revealed to be a CIA asset. In the mid-90s, when Jackie was accusing James Brown of rape and Adrian Brown was accusing him of domestic violence, Mystery Steve showed up. Jackie says Steve told her he worked for the CIA, and she believed he had something to do with Adrian's death. An informant claimed Adrian was murdered by a medical doctor. Adrian's death solved a big problem for James Brown because the domestic violence charges against him were dropped after that. And if Adrian knew too much about secret government activities, her death ensured she wouldn't tell what she knew. Could all of this really be true? I called up Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, the former deputy director of Central Intelligence, and asked him what he made of this strange sequence of events involving the Godfather of Soul. If it is Brown who is interacting in foreign countries, traveling, has been briefed, is willing to be cooperative, reporting what he's seen or heard, 
then uh, there could be an interest in trying to suppress anything that was going to discredit him. I'm just thinking, goodness, could this could this be true that that intelligence officials uh, in the U.S. were trying to sort of run interference in a sense for for a private citizen or, or help him clean up that, a mess? That could only occur if it was somebody who was working for them. I know there are still a lot of ifs here. When you're trying to report on covert intelligence operations, it's very hard to get straight answers. If James Brown was working with the CIA in other countries, would the CIA help him out at home? In March 2021, CNN files a federal lawsuit against the CIA under the Freedom of Information Act, demanding the release of all its documents on the Godfather of Seoul. I've filed hundreds of records requests in my career, and dozens with the CIA, but this is the first time I've ever been involved in a lawsuit like this. As the lawsuit moves forward, I'm still trying to put the puzzle together. What role, if any, did the CIA play in Jackie's life? What about James Brown's life? What about Adrian Brown's death? What about James Brown's death? As I try to make sense of what happened to Brown at the hospital, I keep calling the district attorney's office in Atlanta, asking for updates on the case, but I can't get the spokesman to return my calls. It's been more than a year since Jackie called me to say a prosecutor told her he believed James Brown was murdered. One Saturday afternoon, I'm at home with my family in Georgia when my phone buzzes. Cautiously, I answer, and I hear a familiar voice. It's Ghost. I let him rail at me for a few minutes, and then I hang up. But he calls back. And after several of these calls in recent years... I'm getting fed up with this guy. I'm recording this call now, so if you don't want to be recorded, you should hang up. I'm recording this call. I already hung up on you once, sir, and you called again. He comes like on a crook, a fraud, a liar, a deceiver, a harasser. You may remember Ghost from previous episodes. He claims to be a cousin of James Brown and a friend of Brown's longtime attorney, Buddy Dallas. Buddy says he knows him, but says they've never met face-to-face. Not long after I met Jackie, I learned that Ghost had communicated with her for years as she tried to find the truth about James Brown's death, although Jackie never laid eyes on the guy either. Ghost called me to say Jackie was a liar. He texted Jackie in 2016 about James Brown's death and asked her about the lace poisoning. In another text message I've seen, he wrote, I'm going to the police, FBI, CIA, etc. on you, and they will take care of you. Jackie says he later told her on the phone that the CIA would have her killed. Now, as I dig for more on the connection between James Brown and the CIA, Ghost is making it clear that I need to stop. As I've said, I've had it up to here with these phone calls. Everyone wants you to leave them alone. What is your real name, sir? What is your real name or date of birth? Is it Christian St. John this time or somebody else? Or is it Van St. John? Or is it Ghost this time? Or is it Bob Thomas this time? Who is it? Don't try to play that game with me. It's not a game, sir. It's what I do. It's trying to get accurate information. You are very manipulative. Ghost won't say who told him to call. Or what exactly I did that has him so upset? Well, I received a phone call today. Call this man and tell him 
We want him to leave us alone. Who called you? Who called you and asked you to, to call me? That's none of your business. Leave everyone alone. Leave everyone alone. Around this time, Jackie says she's also heard from Ghost for the first time in years. She says he told her the DA in Atlanta is not investigating James Brown's death because the DA knows Jackie is a liar. By this point in our story, there's a new DA in Atlanta. Mike Sprinkle, the prosecutor Jackie was talking to, texted her to say the changing of the guard at the DA's office would not affect the James Brown case. I got a copy of this message through a records request. Sprinkle wrote to Jackie, I would absolutely tell you if we ended the investigation. But when I check with Jackie a few months later, I learn she hasn't gotten any updates on the investigation from the new DA. Oh, I wish so bad I could speak to Sprinkle. He should know that I am being threatened. And I'm just up here by myself. Jackie says Ghost told her that she and Thomas Lake are going to pay and that we're going to burn in hell and that the DA's office will come after us for our lies. Jackie reports these threats to her local police department. And I wonder what to make of these phone calls. It seems clear that something has Ghost worked up and that when it comes to James Brown's death, someone does not want the truth to come out. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. When I sat down with James Brown's friend, Andre White, in 2017, he sounded determined to learn all he could about how and why Brown died. I'm going to fight till I die trying to find out what happened and who did it. It's just that simple. My interview with White was one of the reasons I decided to look into the strange circumstances of James Brown's death. And White's story was even more compelling, given that he told it to me in the same room with Marvin Crawford, the doctor who signed James Brown's death certificate. And Dr. Crawford had his own questions about what killed the godfather of soul. What went wrong? What happened? Why did he change? He was a patient I would never have predicted would have coded. But he died that night, and I did raise that question. 
what went wrong in that room. What went wrong in that room? A lot of people wanted to know. Dr. Crawford, Andre White, James Brown's son, Daryl, Brown's manager, Frank Copsitis. The Reverend Al Sharpton knew Brown for more than 30 years and saw him as a father figure. Even Sharpton wanted to know what happened to James Brown. I would not oppose a further investigation at all. That's on the record. I've always had and still have a lot of questions. As I said at the beginning of this episode, Jackie heard from Assistant District Attorney Mike Sprinkle in July 2020. She said Sprinkle told her he did believe there had been a cover-up related to James Brown's death. People had lied. Perhaps James Brown had been murdered. He was continuing to look into it. But on August 24, 2020, Sprinkle texted Jackie to say he was dealing with a recent influx of homicides in Atlanta. Later, I obtained a copy of this message from the DA's office. Sprinkle wrote to Jackie, Special investigations, such as this, will be addressed on the resumption of normal operations. And then, without explanation, Sprinkle stopped returning Jackie's calls. Jackie was crushed. After all my years in the world of James Brown, I've gotten used to people changing suddenly. One day, someone seems keenly interested in telling me all they know about Brown, and then they go silent, or claim to have forgotten things, or even deny saying what they've said. It happened with Dr. Crawford after my story came out on CNN.com in 2019. He wouldn't answer the phone, and then he told me to text him. And then he said I had distorted his words, which I knew I hadn't, because I had it all on tape. When I finally got him on the phone a few months later, he said he'd spoken to a relative of James Brown, and this relative wasn't happy with my story. And also, Dr. Crawford didn't think Andre White actually had a vial of James Brown's blood. I was stunned. It sounded as if I were talking to a different person than the one who met me at the church. Dr. Marvin Crawford told me, I received good, wise counsel. Leave it alone, Marvin. He added, I think that the living can die trying to take care of the problem of the dead. Andre White also stopped returning my calls after the story was published. When I knocked on his door, he told me to go away. Jackie had told the district attorney she thought Andre White was afraid for his life, and James Brown's son, Daryl, told me he thought so too. But see, the problem with Andre White, he's scared because he's saying if I, if I say anything, I'm going to be killed. I missed a call from Andre White in March 2020, shortly after the DA opened the inquiry into Brown's death. When I called back, he said he'd dialed me accidentally. He sounded ill. Turns out he was in the hospital then, sick with the coronavirus. When I found out he'd died, I remembered something else he told me. It's just certain things that I have to take to my grave. It's just certain things I have to take to my grave. I don't know what secrets Andre White took to his grave, and I don't know what happened to the vial of James Brown's blood. There's no indication that anyone from the DA's office ever interviewed Andre White or asked him for permission to test the blood. I obtained internal emails from the DA's office, including some between Sprinkle and his colleagues. Several months after Andre White died, Sprinkle wrote, Perhaps someone can knock on the door of the guy that is believed to have the vial of blood and ask him if he still has it. What was going on at the DA's office? 
Later in 2021, I called Paul Howard, the former DA who initially opened the inquiry into James Brown's death. And Howard said something very strange. He said, I have to say James Brown is not within the scope of my memory or consciousness. After the new DA took over in 2021, I had a short phone call with their spokesman. He said he would check on the James Brown matter, but he never got back to me. In the next few months, I tried to reach him dozens of times by phone and email, but I got no reply. Jackie got nowhere either. Finally, when it was clear the inquiry was over and that nothing would be done, Jackie got so frustrated that she asked the DA's office to send her stuff back, the items in the green plastic bin she'd gotten from the storage unit in 2016, including the so-called James Brown duffel bag the black stiletto shoe that might have drug residue on the sole, since the other shoe from the pair had shown traces of cocaine in a test commissioned by CNN. This was all the stuff the prosecutor had laid out on the table and placed into clear plastic evidence bags. In March 2022, Jackie called me. She'd just gotten a package from the DA's office. Okay, they did not send back the evidence. Did, let's, let's go through it. Did you get back the green plastic bin? No. Okay, did you get back the black nylon bag? Just the bag with nothing in it. The bag was empty? Totally empty black bag. But, okay, to, to be 100% clear, Candace's other black stiletto shoe, the one that wasn't tested. It's not here. Nothing from that bag is here. The only thing that came was the black bag itself. What about Candace's, um, the undergarments that were in Ziploc bags? Is that stuff in there? No, or the combs and curlers that are listed in there. The shoes, nothing. Candace's note to self of how did Mr. Brown know I was going to be with him when he died, that's gone? Totally empty bag. Nothing in it. It's all empty. By now, I knew the Fulton DA's office had closed its inquiry without taking any action. The prosecutor wrote in an email to colleagues that he didn't have reasonable suspicion that a crime had occurred. Officials said they were sending all of Jackie's stuff back. We have shipped the items requested, the assistant chief of evidence told Jackie. But they did not send all her stuff back. Not even close. So much of Jackie's evidence had vanished. They sent me back nothing of any value. They kept everything. They have buried the truth. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I've been examining James Brown's life and death for five years. I've interviewed more than 200 people. I've reviewed tens of thousands of documents. And I still have questions. Why did a man about to go home from the hospital suddenly die instead? Did Brown willingly take drugs, or was he given something without his consent? If Brown did take drugs, were they laced with poison, as Ghost indicated in his text to Jackie? Did Brown's death have anything to do with his estate, which was worth almost $100 million? 
Did Brown's plan to escape to New York have anything to do with his death? Was the CIA involved in any of this? Was James Brown murdered? And if so, who did it? These questions deserve answers. The DA's office had an inquiry open for a year and eight months, and they closed it without publicly answering any of them. In the documents I obtained under the Georgia Open Records Act, there's no indication that anyone, from the DA's office or elsewhere, tried to get Brown's medical records, or that any potential evidence, like the stiletto shoe with drug residue, was tested. The DA said that if nothing developed, they'd send Jackie's stuff back. But that didn't happen. The items from Candace Hearst's storage unit seemed to have vanished, with no meaningful explanation from the DA. I've called and emailed the spokesman for DA Fonnie Willis dozens of times. I've sent detailed lists of questions, and I've gotten no reply. Jackie thinks there's more to this than meets the eye, and she still wants to know what happened to the evidence she turned over to the DA. It's been a cover-up from the day I got to his office, and now hers. I think that the uh, U.S. Justice Department needs to be looking down hard on the city of Atlanta district attorney's office. I want to stop for a moment and acknowledge just how unusual this is. In two decades of reporting on the criminal justice system, this is the only time I've ever heard of evidence disappearing from a prosecutor's office. When I filed a request for all documents on the chain of custody for Jackie's items, the DA's legal counsel said no such documents existed other than Jackie's original property receipt. I wrote back, isn't there a system for keeping evidence secure? He replied, one would expect. However, there are no other documents concerning the property. Still looking for answers, I go see Jackie one last time. She's not traveling with the circus anymore. Now she lives in a modest apartment in a small town in Illinois, and she cares for a feral cat. It's a simple life, lonely sometimes, with occasional beats of excitement that come up in her ongoing quest to solve the mystery of James Brown's death. It's an early evening in June, still hot outside. We're standing on the asphalt outside Jackie's storage unit. I pull out my laptop and open a video I obtained from the DA's office, the one that shows Sprinkle going through Jackie's stuff and placing it into evidence bags. This may look familiar to you, all right? Okay. Oh my God, it does look familiar. That is the actual video of us. I didn't know it was being filmed. Sprinkle, I think, was recording. There's the green plastic bin. This is all the stuff laid out on the table in the grand jury room. Yes, all the paperwork, everything. Sprinkle. This right here is the shoe. This is the untested shoe uh, that was believed to be worn. You know what? Seeing this just really pisses me off. There's no way all that stuff walked out of the district attorney's office. I remember you saying a few times, that stuff is going to disappear. And I was like, okay, come on, Jackie. No, no, it's not. What do you... It was one of, I don't know, about 934 times I've been wrong in the last five years. I've been right. And I've been right. It's hard for you to say that, right? Come on, say it. You were right. I was wrong. Another one for me. Even now, I keep thinking maybe there's some other document she hasn't shown me, something she'll remember that she hasn't told me. Maybe there's still time to solve the puzzle. 
here at the storage unit, we go digging again for missing pieces. I think I'm stepping on the edge of the piano that Greg Allman once played. You are. Okay. I don't think you're going to hurt it. Okay. All right. See if there's paperwork in these boxes, these right here. I think there's glass in some of them. That's face paint. We're back where we started five years ago. This is the same storage unit where Jackie dug out the old VHS tape of herself passing the polygraph test administered by the former FBI agent. She said she could find that tape, and she did. Now there's one more box she's looking for, and it might have this one document, and it might answer this one question that's been nagging at me. I wade back into this jumble of stuff, the uncatalogued museum of a life both of us are still trying to understand. Our producer, Rachel, is here too. Some real Tetris. There's like, yeah. oh. oh Lord, have mercy. Oh God, what did break? The lamp. He broke the lamp, didn't he? Oh, you warned me to be careful, and I was not careful enough. Broke my mother's antique lamp, right? Okay. I'm not gonna think about it right now. It's just another piece of broken glass in my life. I wish I could tell you I found what I was looking for. But this time, I didn't. I went prospecting in Jackie's storage unit one last time, and the only thing I accomplished was breaking a lamp. Don't even think about it, Thomas. Just let's keep moving. It's, hey, look, I've lost everything. What does it matter? What does it matter? Well, I've thought about this question for a long time, and I've come up with an answer. It's about Jackie's friend, Adrian Brown, and it's about the power of keeping your promises. A long time ago, Jackie and Adrian were like sisters. They trusted each other. They kept each other's secrets. And before Adrian died, she put some things in a box for Jackie and hid this box in the attic at Jackie's mother's house. Jackie eventually found the box full of Adrian's things, and she kept them. Tonight at the storage unit, she digs out one of these old artifacts. It's a picture of Adrian. You've never seen this. This was in the box that was up at my mother's house. Oh, my goodness. So I put it in this tube. There was a note attached that said, when I die, this is how I want you to release this to the world for me to be remembered. This is this from is, Adrian? This is from Adrian Brown, and this was in the box with all of the tapes and everything else. And it's gotten very old and kind of tattered. So, tell you what, why don't you yeah, hold I'm these hold edges? It so we're unrolling yeah. this yeah. kind of like scroll. But here. this is how she wanted to be remembered oh to the world. There she is, Adrian. The picture is very old, wrinkled and torn. But in this picture, Adrian looks young, with bright eyes and long dark hair and a beautiful smile. Long before her teeth were knocked out, long before she became the world's most battered woman, and she was my best friend. So that's one way Jackie honored Adrienne Brown, remembering her how she wanted to be remembered. But there was also a promise she kept, a promise they made to each other long, long ago. They were both afraid of the James Brown machine. They thought they might be killed at any time. And so... Here's what Adrian told Jackie. If something happened to me, she would continue fighting to the bitter end. 
and that if something happened to her, I would continue fighting till I had exhausted every avenue there was for her. And I've kept that promise. The promise was to fight for justice, fight to bring out the truth. And so, after Adrian died, Jackie called the Beverly Hills police to say Adrian had been murdered. She kept calling the detective for years, kept sending him documents, kept hoping for a break in the case. Looking back on it now, it's incredible that she kept fighting for so long, through so much failure and frustration. It was 21 years after Adrian died when Jackie first called me. She told me about the detective in California who'd looked into Adrian's case. She said I should contact him. And when I did, that's when Detective Miller took a box from his closet and pulled out the informant's notebook and finally read the whole thing. The notebook that said a doctor confessed to murdering Adrian. Jackie never gave up. She kept her promise to Adrian, and that unfathomable persistence brought new evidence to light. Evidence that even now could be used to reopen the investigation into Adrian Brown's death. There is no statute of limitations on murder. Jackie's going to keep fighting for Adrian and for James to the bitter end. Splinters never lie deep forever. They always work their way up to the surface. And I think that clearly is the same about the truth. Something always comes to the surface. Will Jackie leave the DA's office alone? No. She's hired a new lawyer, a former federal prosecutor, who's demanding to know what happened to Jackie's stuff, which used to be Candace's stuff. It's hard to imagine what this lawyer will accomplish, even if he files a lawsuit, because no one can force the DA's office to investigate Brown's death. But Jackie is still trying everything she can. What if this is as far as we get? What if we don't learn anything else? This could be as far as you get, but it'll never be as far as I get. If you and I never talked again... Right. You're, you're saying, though, you would keep pressing forward? You would keep looking for answers on your own? Yes. Why? It's just the girl I am. But why does it matter so much to you? Because it was my life. For five years, I've been pressing Jackie to tell me everything. Show me everything. Remember everything. I just kept thinking I was one interview or one document away from solving the whole mystery of James Brown's life and death. But right here... Right now, after five years driven forward by irrational optimism and desperate curiosity, I've reached a new phase. Acceptance. I may never know the whole truth. I was thinking about this, Jackie. Um, I don't know how everything is going to turn out with your lawyer, the DA's office, the lawsuit against the CIA, the death of James Brown, the death of Adrian Brown, all that stuff. It's all important. I don't know where any of it is going to go, how any of it is going to end, but here's what I do know. Uh, I'm really glad you called me five years ago. You're going to make me start crying. I keep thinking about this one song Jackie wrote, Malibu. It's about fond memories of her father and finding peace on the shoreline. 
This song has never been released, but Jackie played me the demo. Jackie wrote that song almost 40 years ago. She was a young songwriter then, a rising star, until suddenly she wasn't. That's the line from Malibu that gets me every time. Tonight I saw a falling star, it reminded me of you. And when I think of falling stars, I think of Jackie. She has fallen a long way since 1988. She was still falling in 2016, around Christmas time. And so was I. I've called 2016 my worst Christmas ever. I'd spent that year on the campaign trail, writing a book about a relentlessly negative presidential race. My soul was depleted. Christmas Eve 2016 was exactly 10 years after the night James Brown died. By then, Jackie was convinced Brown had been murdered. But not many people knew the story she'd uncovered. She went into this church for a Christmas Eve service, and she says she heard this voice telling her, now is the time to stand and be heard. Not long after that, I was at my desk when a call from a stranger came in. I said, "Um, look, I know you're probably going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to ask that you not hang up on me. And I said, "Um, I'm with the circus. The James Brown Mystery is hosted and reported by me, Thomas Lake. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin. And our producers are Rachel Cohn, Anne Lagamayo, Lori Gallaretta, and Jennifer Lott. Our associate producers are Emmanuel Johnson, Nathan Miller, and Sonia Tun. And our production assistant is Eden Getachew. Our story editor is David Weinberg, and our production manager is Tamika Balance-Kolasny. Liz Roberts and Kira Posey lead audience strategy for our show, and Jameis Andrus and Nicole Pesseru designed our artwork. Erica Wong is our mix engineer and sound designer. Selena Uthabe is our assistant sound engineer, and Dan DeZula is CNN Audio's senior manager of production operations. Theme and original music composed by David Steinberg and Nathan Miller. Special thanks to Mia Taylor, Courtney Coop, Katie Hinman, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Dalila Paul, Andrea White, Anissa Gray, Janita Du, Ram Ramgapal, Lisa Namaro, and John Dianora. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.